The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 12 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC12. This is Secret Church 12, Episode 4. On to the Psalms and wisdom literature. One of the classic texts, obviously, on suffering is Job, and that's, that's the first book we've got here. So I'm going to split Job into four different sections here. Show you God's sovereignty in suffering, God's sufficiency in suffering, God's purpose in suffering, and God's power in suffering. So let's take them one by one. First, his sovereignty. We're not going to read the whole story. But basically, Job, called a blameless man in the text, becomes the com- subject to conversation between God and Satan. Satan tells God that Job only worships him because Job has stuff. He's been blessed. So God gives permission to Job, to, to Satan, to strike Job. And Job's possessions are destroyed one after another by foreign armies. Then his children are killed in a massive natural disaster where a house caves in on all of them. At the end of this, Job arose, tore his body, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So what do we learn here about the suffering of Job? First, suffering is often undeserved. Now, we've been talking up to this point over and over again about how in the Old Testament, suffering is often deserved. How suffering is often a direct result of sin. But that's not the kind of suffering that's depicted in Job. What's being addressed here is the seemingly unjust, unwarranted suffering that happens in life. Part of the point of the the book of Job is to show us that sometimes suffering seems unjust. The author goes to great pains to show us that Job's suffering is in no way a connection to his character. Job is not perfect. Obviously, none none but Christ in Scripture was. But the Picture's clear. Four terms, you look at these passages used to describe Job. Blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. That's the portrait we have of Job. Blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. The author is going to great pains to show us that suffering came to Job not because of a particular sin in his life, but precisely because he avoided sin. In addition, suffering is often unexpected. You don't usually wake up in the morning expecting suffering to come crashing down on you, and Job certainly didn't, but it did. It's often unexpected and it's often unimaginable. You see the spiraling effect and all the way through Job 1. And you get to the end and Job 2 just picks up more. Satan says, well, he saved his skin. And so Job is afflicted with all these different boils. We don't know exactly what the physical affliction Job had, but we see all throughout the book. Ulcerous sores, itching, degenerative changes in facial skins, loss of appetite, depression, loss of strength, worms in the boils, running sores, difficulty in breathing, darkness under the eyes, foul breath, loss of weight, continual pain, restlessness, blackened skin, peeling skin, and fever. In his deepest nightmares, Job could not have imagined what was going on to him right now. It's often unimaginable. It has a surreal feel to it. And suffering is always painful. You look at these verses describing Job and you realize that the Bible does not gloss over the pain of suffering. The pain of suffering is real. Please do not hear me at any point tonight saying that suffering is not painful and grief is not heavy and sorrow is just easy when you know God. It's not easy. So that's the suffering of Job. In the midst of that suffering, I want to show you the sovereignty of God. Because God is sovereign over everything in Job 1 and 2. God is sovereign over angels and God is sovereign over demons, including Satan. We talked about this in Genesis 3. See it again. The power of Satan is always limited by the prerogative of God. Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. The moment he has permission, he wreaks havoc on Job. So who's bringing suffering on Job? In a direct way, Satan is bringing suffering on Job. But in an ultimate way, 
God is bringing suffering on Job. Just like we saw in Joseph. God is ultimately sovereign over every single, tab, every single thing that's happened to Job in these two chapters. Because Satan can't do anything outside of God's sovereignty. Put it plainly, Satan's on a leash. And God holds the reins. God's almighty. Satan's not. God's omnipotent. Satan's not. God's omniscient. Satan's not. God's sovereign. Satan is not sovereign. God is sovereign over angels and demons. He's sovereign over nations. Sabaeans and Chaldeans who attack Job's household. God's sovereign over nature. Fire falling from the sky and wind coming from the desert. God's sovereign over disease. When Job is inflicted with these sores, it's not Satan who has ultimately power over Job's, Job's health. God does. And that's where we realize that God is sovereign over death. Job likely thinks in chapter 2 that Satan ultimately has nothing, that he has maybe a terminal disease that he's not going to be able to survive from. But the reality is Satan is not sovereign over whether or not Job lives or dies. God is sovereign over whether or not Job lives or dies. Satan does not decide when you or I live or die. God does that. If he wills, James 4.15 says, we will live. If he doesn't, we will die. God is sovereign over death, not Satan. God is sovereign over comfort. God is attributed with the blessings of Job in the beginning of chapter 1. And God is sovereign over calamity. Look at Job 2, 9 and 10. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? See it. God's ultimately sovereign, not just over Job's blessing, but over his suffering. This is huge to understand. God is not charge of, in charge of Job's blessings while Satan's in charge of Job's sufferings. That's not the picture here. Satan is in charge of nothing. God is sovereign over everything. So where does that leave us? Bring it together three key conclusions from the start of this book. God's sovereignty in our suffering. One, God's sovereign design for our lives on this earth includes suffering. Now, I put the word design there because God is not just allowing suffering to, hear, to happen here. It's actually a part of his design. God designs suffering. Who initiated suffering in Job's life? Satan or God? God did. He said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Job's, Job knows that what has happened is in God's design. Did you hear what he said in 121? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Who take away all these things? Satan? No, God took him away. We've already seen that these tragedies were directly the work of Satan, but Satan's work was ultimately under the sovereign design of God. So God's sovereign design for our lives on this earth includes suffering. Second conclusion, the sovereignty of God is the only foundation for praise in the middle of pain. This is just what we saw in Joseph. It's what Job said in 120. After all this happened, Job gets up, tears his robe, shaves his head, falls to the ground and worship. How do you praise God in the middle of pain like that? That's a tough question. How do you say, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I'll depart, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, in the name of the Lord be praised. Job reached into the depth of his being and the only foundation for praise that he found is the sovereignty of God, which begs the question, how is God's sovereignty a foundation for praise? Some would say, well, if God's sovereign, then why do I still have cancer? Why does this person still have to die? What good is it if he's sovereign, if I die anyway, or they died anyway, or still have this pain? And here's why I want us to see the implications of God's sovereignty. Follow this. God's sovereignty assures us that he is in control. When you or I are suffering, it will not bring much comfort to you to think that Satan is in control. But that's exactly what people try to comfort themselves with. Well, certainly God's not in control of that. Well, what would be the other option? And is that actually comforting to you? I want to plead with you, brothers and sisters, not to go there. Because God is all-powerful and He is all-good. And amidst all the things we don't know in the midst of suffering, this we do know. He is God and He is in control. And consider the implications of this. If God is in control, then that means that every moment in our sufferings, God is with us. Job knows that in the misery of his soul, he's not alone. That's why Job wrestles throughout the rest of the book. Because he knows God's with him. 
And this is key. He also knows that every moment in our suffering, God is for us. Job says, the Lord gave. Covenant name of God. The name expresses his faithfulness toward his people. I long for you to see this tonight in your suffering. That God not only has 100% control of everything that's happening in your suffering. That he's not only 100% with you, but that God, child of God, he is 100% for you. He's not 99.9% for you. Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the majestic and the mighty one over all the universe is 100% for you. So why does God's sovereignty lead to praise? His sovereignty assures us that God is in control. His sovereignty reminds us that Satan has been conquered. Part of the point of the book of Job is to flat out humiliate Satan and to showcase his lack of power. After chapter 2, he's silenced for the rest of the book. God's sovereignty guarantees us that one day our suffering will conclude. If things are out of control, brothers and sisters, then what guarantee, we, what guarantee do we have of how they will end up? Because things are in God's control, we have an absolute guarantee of how they're going to end up. Which leads to the third conclusion from this part of Job. Ultimately, our pain on earth can only be rightly understood from the sovereign perspective of heaven. This is huge. This book is all about the, discovering the mysteries of the sovereignty of God. But I want you to notice how the story is told here. Job is at no point let in on the conversation that has taken place in heaven. As a result, the only perspective that he has is one from the middle of darkness that surrounds him. But you and I have a whole other perspective, right? We've got the bird's eye view of this story. We have a different perspective that helps us understand all that's happening to Job. We know that this is actually an honor for Job. We know the end from the beginning, that Job will eventually be restored. But Job doesn't know any of that. And that's part of the point of the book. Whenever we walk through suffering, we have a limited perspective, every one of us. Now, I'm not saying that any time we suffer, it's because there's been some conversation between God and Satan and heaven about our lives like we see here in Job. But the reality is, no matter what happens in our suffering, our perspective will always be an earthly one. We will see pain at that level. And the point of Job here and the sovereignty of God is to remind us that there's a whole other perspective. It's the perspective of a God who is with us and for us, a God who is wise and loving toward his people, a God who has full reign over any and everything in our lives. So why is this happening to me, we ask? The answer may not be found on this earth. Mysteries of this earth are ultimately attributable to matters of heaven. Just imagine the picture here. Heavenly perspective, pictured of Job's suffering. There stands God and Satan with 10,000 angels looking on as Satan accuses Job of false worship and says God pays him to worship him. And God responds, you can do anything to Job under my sovereignty, just don't take his life. And Satan does. He strikes down Job's possessions and his children. And hush comes over heaven as God and Satan and 10,000 angels watch in silence to Hear Job's response. And Job looks up and he says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And unbeknownst to Job, 20,000 arms in heaven shoot into the sky. And 20,000 voices shout out, Worthy is the God of Job. And Job had no clue that was happening as Satan ran from the presence of God. That's the perspective of heaven. So the question for all of us is, will we praise God when we're surrounded by the mysteries of earth? Will we trust God with the sovereign perspective of heaven? That leads to the second part, Job 3 to 31, God's sufficiency in suffering. So what do you do not just when suffering strikes, but when suffering lingers for days and months and years? We got victory in chapter 2, but you keep going on. And this lasts for days and days and days and days. Nothing better. Everything's still gone from Job's life. And he's sitting in a trash heap with oozing sores, boils all over his body. So see the sufficiency of God, not just when suffering happens, but when suffering continues. 
There's Job surrounded by three friends. And over these chapters, these three, three friends dialogue with Job. And I want to show you four truths that, truths that come out of those dialogues. First, when the pain of suffering persists, God is still present. This is, this is key. When the pain of suffering persists, and God, in a variety of ways, says, I am with you, we want an explanation. That's natural. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to ask God. Why? Looking for an explanation. We're going to talk in a minute about the purpose of God in suffering, the why of God in suffering. But at this point, I want us to keep this question in perspective. When suffering persists, we want an explanation, but what God gives us is revelation. And that is what we need most. That's where this whole book is headed in Job 42. Our greatest need is not an explanation from God, but the presence of God revealed to us. Now, as soon as I say that, some of you might think, what do you mean my greatest need is presence? I'd rather have an explanation. But would we really? Think about it this way. I broke my wrist a few years ago. I was writhing in pain. In those moments, I don't need a doctor to come and show me the x-ray and give me the explanation for how the wrist broke and why I am hurting. I want him to give, him, give me something to help with the pain at that moment. Or think about it another way. I, I got a lot to learn in marriage, but this thing I have learned, when my wife is going through difficult times, the thing that she needs most from me is not explanations. The thing that she needs most from me is presence. And that's the point. We do not have a God who is distant from us, doling out philosophical explanations for why suffering exists. He's not showing us an x-ray machine and giving us medical explanations while we're writhing in pain. Instead, we have a God who is with us, who never leaves us or forsakes us when the pain persists. And we want answers to our whys and our suffering. Instead of giving us an explanation, he gives us what is infinitely better. He gives us himself. When the pain of suffering persists, you are not alone. He is with you. When the gifts we enjoy are gone, God is still good. Now that takes us back to what we saw in chapter 1. Satan had challenged God, saying he had to pay Job in order to, worship, in order to get Job to worship him. The only reason Job worshiped God is because of all these blessings, take the gifts away, and Job would curse God. Job didn't curse God, but then the chapters unfold from his friends, they begin to give him some very bad counsel. In a nutshell, his friends tell Job that the reason he's suffering is because of some sin in his life. They've got this theology that says that God blesses the righteous and he afflicts the wicked. Since God has afflicted Job, then obviously Job must be wicked. Therefore, he needs to repent. And when he does, God will restore his blessing to Job. That's the bulk of the conversation that takes place from chapter 3 to 31. Some of these things these friends say are good, make some statements but that's a, that, are, that are true and said well. But it's a perfect example of how good theology distorted and twisted slightly here and there can become very bad counsel. Because the theology that Job's friends propose is rigid. If you follow God, you trust God, you'll have prosperity. If you disobey God, you, su- you suffer. You won't have prosperity. And that is poor theology, and it is alive and well in contemporary Christianity. It's a false gospel that sees suffering as evidence of the displeasure of God. Now, I want to be careful here. We're not talking about the effects, consequences of sin here. Those consequences are real in every one of our lives. We've seen sin results in suffering. That's what we've seen. But the, we twist that truth when we apply it to all suffering. And that's what many have done in American prosperous Christianity. Trust God, follow God, and you will prosper. Your prosperity will be evidence of the pleasure of God in your life. But if you lack faith in God, you'll suffer. And your suffering will be evidence of the displeasure of God in your life. I remember sitting in a house church, talking to a woman in Asia who knew a little bit of English, who had a TV, who was able to watch some stuff from here. And she said, I see people on, in churches where you live, and they tell me that if I trust God, that I'll have riches and all of these things. And she said, I come to our house church. We're meeting in secret at the risk of our lives. We're all poor. Does this mean we don't have enough faith in God? She asked me that. At that point, 
I started to get angry at all the prosperity preachers. But then I realized this is exactly what I am a part of exporting to the world. And a whole system of Christianity that looks at bigger, better, more stuff, more things, bigger houses, nicer stuff. And this is what happens when you follow God. It's not true. It's what we've exported around the world. The true gospel sees suffering as a means to more deeply treasure God. And this is a radically different way to look at Christianity in our lives. It's what Job is learning and showing to us. He's showing Satan and the world and his friends the struggle of faith when all the gifts are gone. He's showing us how suffering is a means by which we learn to treasure God more deeply when those gifts are gone. Think about this practical level. Think about what it means to treasure God regardless of his gifts. What is suffering? At the core, suffering is the taking away of things in this world that we enjoy. Our reputation, our success, esteem among peers, job, money, friends, health, sight, hearing, spouse, children, family. These are things we look to for stability and security. And when these things are taken away, we suffer. But if God is our treasure, not his gifts, but God, if God is our security and God is our stability, not these gifts, then when we lose one of these things, all that does is drive us deeper to the treasure we have in God. Got one less thing, even one less good thing to lean on instead of God. Now that doesn't make it easy. The pain of losing that thing, that person may be great and the tears may be many, but the goal will be worth it because we will more deeply treasure God. God, give us the kind of Christianity that says, even when all the gifts are gone, you are still good. Even when my job's gone, house gone, car gone, money's not there, health not there. Even when we can't get pregnant, even when I don't find the husband or wife I want so badly, even when the one I love is gone, even then you are good. Third truth, in the confusion of our circumstances, God is all wise. Job is a part of wisdom literature here. And you see a contrast right in the middle of the book, Job 28, between the limited wisdom of man. So follow this, limited wisdom of man. Think about it. We lack knowledge. We act unwisely sometimes because we don't have all the facts. We may find out something later and we think, well, if I'd known that, I would have done something different. We lack knowledge. We lack perspective. Sometimes our perspective is jaded, distorted, maybe even limited. Many times we don't perceive the effects of a decision. We're not able to see it completely from another point of, another point of view. And so we make unwise decisions based on that. And then sometimes we lack experience. If we've been through a situation before, we're able to make wise decisions. If we've not been through a situation, not experienced it, we make more unwise decisions. So we're limited in those areas. But you think about God. Think about the unlimited wisdom of God. He has perfect knowledge. He has all the facts. Never finds out something and says, Ah, I didn't realize that. If I'd have known that, I'd have done something different. That never happens with God. God has eternal perspective. Unlimited perspective. He not only sees things now, He knows things in eternity past and in eternity future that will be affected by this. That's why God encourages us to trust Him in the dark. He has infinite experience. He's not a rookie when it comes to wisdom. His experience is infinite. So consider the sufficiency of God's wisdom in your trials and the depth of what you and I go through in the midst of all our questions. We have valid questions, but the reality is we lack knowledge. We lack perspective and we lack experience. And God looks at us and says, trust me. How can you trust him? Here's how you can trust him when you know that his knowledge is perfect. He knows all things and he knows what's best in all things. You can trust him when you know that his perspective is eternal. He sees all things and their effect on all peoples for all eternity. You can trust him when you know that he has infinite experience and he knows what he's doing and he's going to do it right every time. That's the wisdom of God and it's a rock in suffering. With perfect knowledge, eternal perspective, infinite experience, God always, always, always does what is best. He always gives what is best. I won't pretend to say this is easy, but it is bedrock truth. Tozer said, with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? 
God is infinitely wise and we are not. And it honors him when we trust him, even when we don't understand what he's doing. The sufficiency of God and our confusion of our circumstances, God is all wise. Fourth truth, in the depth of our despair, God is our hope. So Job cries out, Oh, that my words were written, they were inscribed in a book, and with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart goes faint, faints within me. In the depth of despair, Job cries out, There is hope, I have a Redeemer, and in the end, in my flesh, I will see him with my own eyes. Know this. Here's the hope for every man, woman, boy, and girl who trusts in God in the middle of suffering. He will heal our bodies and we will see his face. The sufficiency of God in suffering leads to God's purpose in suffering. Job's debated with three fins, entering another guy. We got Elihu come on the scene. And Elihu speaks to Job. And we begin to really get the question, why? What's the purpose in suffering here? And basically what Elihu says is significant foundations. One, God has a purpose. God is not arbitrary, Elihu says in Job 36. Things don't happen haphazardly. God has a purpose. God's purpose is sometimes different. You look at chapter 37, verse 11 through 13. He talks about rain. God loads the thick cloud with moisture. The cloud scatters lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love. So there's three reasons why God sends rain. Sometimes for correction, sometimes out of love, sometimes for the land. So his purpose is sometimes different, and his purpose is always good. He's just and righteous in all, these, all that he does. So, with those foundations, see these purposes that come out here in these chapters for which God uses suffering. God uses suffering to refine our faith. God uses suffering to turn us aside, turn man aside from his deed and conceal our pride. God uses suffering to bring a man's soul back from the pit. God refines, restores, saves, works in suffering for our good. Go back to the emergency room with broken wrist. With all due respect to those who are in the medical profession, we all know that when a, when a doctor wants to snap a bone back into place, we don't very, have very pleasant thoughts about that doctor. But we know that even if it's painful, it will be for good. God uses suffering to refine our faith. God uses suffering to reveal His glory. Job feel like, feels like God has been silent. And Elihu says, God is speaking Listen, look at how God reveals himself. God reveals himself in creation, Job 36. God reveals himself in creation. God reveals himself through his word. God is not silent. You ever feel like God's silent in your suffering? He's speaking in creation through his word. God reveals himself in our pain, Job 33, 19-26. And C.S. Lewis said in The Problem of Fame, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's its megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So what does God reveal about himself? God, Job learns that God reveals he is just, God is just, Job 34, 10 through 12. God is merciful, Job 36, 15 through 16. God is great, just, merciful, great. The picture here is clear. It's justice, mercy, greatness. And when we go through suffering, we come to a deeper realization of his character. As we wrestle with God's revelation of himself in suffering, we need to avoid these extremes. Number one, declaring our innocence. So we've already talked about how it wasn't a specific sin in Job's life that caused this to come about. At the same time, Elihu points out that he's still a sinner. And, and we need to be careful in the midst of suffering not to see ourselves as completely innocent. Second, distrusting God's justice. Throughout the book, Job at numerous points basically calls God to court, summoning God to show if he is really just. And Elihu says, God is completely just. We have to be careful when we see injustice in our world and in our lives. When we 
Don't wonder why certain things are happening. Not to go where Scripture, where God does not allow, not to go in Scripture where God does not allow us to go, distrusting His very character. We avoid missing His mercy. We need to avoid missing His mercy amidst all the bad things. Sometimes we, we turn a deaf ear to the evidences of God's mercy all over us in suffering. And we need to avoid minimizing His greatness, which we've talked about. God uses suffering to refine our faith, to reveal His glory. Third, God uses suffering to teach us to rely on Him. This whole point in Job 34, 13 through 15, our every breath comes from God. So ultimately, when, when we hit this diagnosis from the doctor, or this or that, we remember, no matter what the doctors say, no matter what the odds of survival are, no matter what the chances of recovery are, the reality is our destiny is not dependent on doctors or odds or chances of recovery. Our destiny is dependent on God and God alone. And suffering is designed by God to teach us to rely on Him for every breath. God uses suffering to bring us to repent of and renounce all sin in our lives. Now, again, not suffering not owing to a direct sin in Job's life. But we saw Romans chapter 5, all of this suffering came originally from one sin in the world. All suffering in the world, even if it's not directly attributable for a specific sin in your life, is a result of sin in the world. And so when we see suffering in our lives, part of the purpose of cancer is to cause us to hate sin all the more. Because sin is what have brought about all the suffering that is in the world. And if we walk through cancer still toying with sin like we were before cancer, we've missed part of God's design in cancer. We walk through grief and pain and hardship and we still love sin. And we still indulge in sin like we did before. We've missed part of the point. Suffering is intended to drive us to hate sin and all of its effects. Repent of, renounce all sin in our lives. God uses suffering to lead us to our reward in Him. The whole book is headed to the point where Job sees God in all of His glory. There is great hope in the purpose of God in our suffering. He's ref- I remember, remember talking, my first semester teaching in seminary, talking with a student in my class. This, this, she was uh, a single woman whose husband had died in a tragic hunting accident. Uh, he was on a canoe out in the middle of a lake hunting uh, her husband stood up at the wrong time and the, and the man behind him was shooting the gun at that time. And, and she had gone through that over the last year. And she looked at me one day. She was sharing her story. She looked at me and a few others. And she said, I've experienced pain and hurt that I never could have imagined. But then she said, it's worth it to know what I know about God. And there's a silent around the room. She'd seen God as her reward in a way that she'd never known before. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying you get there overnight. But there's reward to be found in Him. So we ask these questions in suffering. What areas of my faith are being refined? What is God revealing about Himself? How can I rely on God more as a result of this? What sin do I need to repent of and renounce as a result of my suffering? How can that drive me to find deeper reward in God, all that leading to God's power and suffering. So this is the truth. We've already seen what we want in our suffering is an explanation from God. What we receive in our suffering is revelation of God. That's what Johnny Erickson Tata says. God, like a, Johnny Erickson Tata herself paralyzed to live in a wheelchair many years ago, said God, like a father, doesn't just give advice. He gives himself. He becomes the husband of the grieving widow. He becomes the comfort of the barren woman. He becomes the father of the orphan. He becomes the bridegroom to the single person. He's the healer to the sick. He is the wonderful counselor to the confused and depressed. So what does God reveal himself about himself? God reveals that his power is great. He's our creator, Job 38, 4 through 11. He's our sustainer. Who gives the lions and birds their food every day? Natural selection? No. Supernatural provision. God talks about 
The ostrich in Job 39, I love this. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but they are the pinions and plumage of love. Are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be worn on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain. Yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and give her no share in understanding. <laughs> the ostrich is dumb. <laughs> Do you know why, Job? Because I made it dumb. That's what God's saying. He's our creator, he's our sustainer, he's our savior, and God is our friend, the Lord, the covenant God of love. He is our friend. God's power is great. His purpose is guaranteed. I know that you can all do all things, Job concludes. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. I love this. Think about one of the lessons of the book of Job. Satan's attempts to attack God's people only serve to accomplish God's purpose. Yes, not only has Satan acted within the divine permission of God, but Satan is actually helping fulfill the divine purposes of God. God's purpose guaranteed. His knowledge is perfect. God knows all things comprehensively. Who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge, words without knowledge? Get the picture here. God says to Job, Job, see all that I do as creator and sustainer of the universe and realize that your suffering is a mystery that's connected to 10,000 other mysteries in the world and I know what I'm doing in every single one of them. And Job, you don't know what I'm doing. You're completely ignorant of 99.99999% of the processes going on in this world. And the last place for man to be is instructing the creator and sustainer of all things and how he should run the world or worse yet, condemning the creator and sustainer of all things for how he is running the world. Don't miss this. Instead of God trying to explain everything to Job, God says, you think this world is strange and mysterious? It's far more strange and mysterious than you even begin to imagine. And I know all of its mysteries. God knows all things comprehensively and he knows each of us completely. He sustains us, the details of our lives. There's not one detail in your life that is beyond the watch and care of God. He knows all things comprehensively and he knows each of us completely. His knowledge is perfect and his mercy is personal. So up until this point, Job's knowledge of God, even his questions about God, had been indirect and impersonal. But the conclusion Job comes to is, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and action and ashes. When we see the revelation of God, our initial reaction is awe. Job is silenced before God and we repent of sin. We turn from ourselves, basically. When we see the mercy of God up close and personal, our initial reaction is our, and our eternal spot response is adoration. We rejoice in our God. God's sovereignty, sufficiency, purpose, and power. The book of Job leads us into the Psalms, songs amidst suffering. We got songs of lament amidst suffering, like Psalm 13 and others. Basically, laments usually follow a pattern. A heartfelt cry in the midst of suffering, an honest complaint before God for the depth of pain that the Psalmist is experiencing, all leading to a humble confession of trust in God in the end. Other psalms express confidence in mixed suffering. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So get the setting here. David saw, David saw devastation, desertion, and danger all around him. He's in, it's all around him. Devastation, desertion, danger. In light of that, what did David pray? One thing I've asked of the Lord. This is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. See what David prayed. The shock of his prayer. David doesn't ask first for deliverance. Instead, David asks first for God. 
knowing the benefits of this request, that God is absolutely sovereign and incomparably beautiful. And this, God, is his soul's greatest need. So the relevance of his example here for us is huge. What is our one thing? In the midst of suffering, what one thing do we need most? What is our one cry to God? Do we find God useful for our circumstances, or do we find him glorious regardless of circumstances? That's a huge question. And see what David concluded. David concluded that confidence is found and focus on God amidst our affliction. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. Nestled. So then see Psalms of thanksgiving amidst suffering. Nestled in the heart of Psalm 119. The psalmist says what we saw earlier. It was good for me that I was afflicted. I might learn your statues. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. So basically, this is the psalmist saying, thank you, God, for affliction. See how suffering drives us to God's word. To learn it, to believe it, to obey it, and to love it. It was good for me to be afflicted, that I might love your word all the more. John Bunyan was thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. He said, I have never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now in prison. The scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. I have seen such things here that I am persuaded I shall never, while in this world, be able to express. Being very tender of me, God hath not suffered me to be molested, but with one scripture and another strengthened me against all, insomuch that I have often said, were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble for the greater comfort's sake. Suffering drives us to God's word. Suffering reminds us of God's goodness. Suffering reminds us that God's character is good, his word is good, and his ways are good. See how the Psalms teach us to pray amidst suffering. Sometimes in lament, sometimes in confidence, sometimes in thanksgiving and praise. Proverbs, suffering and wisdom. The whole book of Proverbs is about wisdom. Two important important reminders from the start of the book. Wisdom is the fruit of the fear of God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Second reminder. Remember, Proverbs are guidelines for living, not guarantees in life. In other words, they're not to be taken face value as specific guarantees for every situation in life. They contain guidelines, truths for living. So what do these wisdom sayings have to do with suffering? Two general takeaways. One, wisdom sometimes keeps us from suffering. And I've listed here some of the examples of that. Slothfulness casts us into a deep sleep. An idle person will suffer hunger. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. And then you got this Proverbs 7, stern, picturesque warning of suffering that flows from adultery. Wisdom sometimes keeps us from suffering. And wisdom always sustains us through suffering. Wisdom always sustains us through suffering. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean out on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Suffering and wisdom. Then Ecclesiastes. We see suffering and worldliness. A somewhat challenging book to understand, but one that has a lot to teach us about suffering in the world. I put a couple of reminders here. Help us understand Ecclesiastes. When we read this book, we need to hear two voices in the text. Okay, you got the voice of the preacher. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And the voice of the narrator. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. At the same time, we need to understand two key ideas. Two key ideas, vanity and under the sun. Vanity refers to meaningless, futility, pointlessness. Under the sun, talking about life without reference to God. So the point that the book of Ecclesiastes makes over and over again is that everything is is meaningless without reference to God. Bread's made for laughter, wine glads life, money answers everything. All that, meaningless, without reference to God. When we hear Ecclesiastes in its original Old Testament context, we realize the preacher has observed two problems here. Number one, what we see under the sun is permanent. It persists persists from generation to generation. Nothing new, same old thing. And what we see under the sun is pointless. The preacher sees futility in the world on every level. He says wisdom is pointless. Pleasure is pointless. Labor, work is pointless. 
life is pointless. It's all pointless, specifically when it's perceived without reference to God. And based on that, the narrator offers two conclusions. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. But that brings us into the New Testament context. And you realize none of us can keep God's commandments. As we've seen, we all live under the curse of God. Our relationship with our creator is destroyed. Our relationship with creation is distorted. And as we've we've seen, that curse is by divine design. God has made the pursuits of this world futile. He's designed them that way to show us that there's a problem that needs to be dealt with. The curse alerts us to the problem of sin. Futility in the world alerts us to the emptiness that results from sin. In the process, the curse points us to Jesus as the only one who can address the problem of sin. So Jesus redeems us from the curse of God, which we've already seen in Deuteronomy 23, Galatians 3. And when he does, watch this. Suddenly, in Christ, there is something new under the sun. A new birth into a new kingdom with a new covenant, with new mercies, going to a new heaven and a new earth. And in Christ, no longer is anything vanity. Christ gives meaning to that which was empty and hollow without him. Futility and depression give way to vitality and life. And Christ is the difference. So you apply Ecclesiastes. Be warned about worldly pursuits. They will not satisfy. You put your hope in the pleasures, possessions, people, and pursuits of this world. You will have an empty soul. Be working in the Lord. Give yourselves to God and commit your life to what lasts. And in the midst of a world that is futile without Christ, be longing for His return. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.